Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today my guest is Phil McGowan, currently an academic but a serial entrepreneur who's opened numerous businesses, he's sold uh, businesses, he's grown them and he's come with scar tissue to his academic studies. Phil, welcome and thank you. Hello. Could you give a quick 90 second introduction to your career that got you to this point? Okay, so I guess I went the fairly classic route of sales for my age group, um, mid-50s as I am now. Left school at 15, coming up 16. Um, Shall I say I was more invited to leave than chose to leave, but it was probably mutual. Went out and did a a variety of not very good jobs, not very well paid, and found myself after about 12 months or so doing commission-only sales, riding around on a moped selling photocopiers. That was absolutely fine in the summer for a couple of months, but as September came, it started raining, and I managed to sell a photocopier to a software company, and they said, hmm, would you like a job? And I said, is it inside? Is it warm? Is it dry? Do you pay a salary? (laughs) The answers to those questions led me to working there for about 18 months. That took me through computer games, telesales, into selling technology, and I spent the next eight or nine years of my life selling technology. On the run into my 25th birthday, an opportunity arose, and I set up my first business, I grew that business and sold it, and that became the bedrock of setting up a number of tech companies over the next 25 years. As I ran into that business, I'd been married, my wife became my business partner, and over the period of our business career, we set up seven businesses, bought two, sold eight, and I closed one. And the reason I closed one is my wife sadly passed away. And that led to a re-evaluation of my career. What am I going to do now? I didn't want to be in business without my partner. That led to an opportunity at the University of Portsmouth. I took a master's degree. I'm currently in the process of finishing a PhD, and I've been teaching there for the past four years. So yeah, scars on the back, been there and done it at the business level, then went from managing director. I I think officially my job title was group chief executive at the point that I, I sold the last batch of companies, and now I became junior academic. So lots of learning in that process. I bet there must be a lifetime of scar tissue there. So tell me, what are the four most common questions that you get asked about why sales fails and why businesses fail? I tend to get asked, what's the most important sales skill? Everybody, well, not everybody, lots of people ask me that question, hoping there's a magic silver bullet. Now, with all your experience, what's the sales skill that if I learn will turn me into a master salesperson? To which the answer is, I don't know. I've never come across one single thing, and we'll come on to that. The second one is, how do I become successful in business? Again, there's no single one answer to that. Success is a journey, we say, not a destination. And it comes on to the the, the kind of question of what do you define success to be? I am sure in every one of my businesses, there was potential to take the businesses further. But there was a point at which I looked at the business and said, there is not the right home life business balance here. And so I would tend to rein it back in because to me, success included my family, my five children, and doing what I wanted to do within that environment, not just being a business owner uh, and necessarily having the bigger bottom line as I could. So there was a balance within it. So again, what's successful? How do I become successful in business? They're questions that you, you really need to think about, tends to be my answer. Question number three, Where's the next big market opportunity? Which business is going to boom next? Where do I invest my money? She's often very quickly followed by question number four. How do I get you to invest in my business, Phil? And sometimes it's money and sometimes it's time and effort. That's the request. Of course, if I knew where the next market was, I would very rapidly invest in it. I think at the end of the day, you have to take 
cautious decisions and sometimes you just have to give it a go. Excellent. In terms of the businesses that you ran, were you selling direct or through partners? Or Dominantly channel. Excellent. Okay. That, that again is my specific interest. So we'll explore that in some depth because I, I think managing channel sales is the toughest sales job there is bar none. And if you look at the makeup of a good channel manager, their profile is closer to a general manager than a sales manager. And a good channel chief is closer to a CEO than they are to a VP of sales. Tell me this then, how do you juggle managing a group of companies and focus your energy and attention where it matters the most in that case? To be honest, you pose a question, we're using the word juggle, and the short answer is you don't. If you are the man that's running around with seven spinning plates, you're going to be running around faster and faster and faster, spin them faster and faster and faster. Much better to employ somebody to spin each plate for you and then touch base with them and make sure that they're doing what you want them to do. So you don't manage seven businesses. What you do is you manage seven managing directors, although I would say all seven weren't there at the same place. I think the biggest number I had simultaneously was four running. And in that case, I, I had three managing directors and myself and I tended to put myself in the startup position, what I really enjoy and I really think I'm quite good at is taking a blank piece of paper and turning it into a business. By the time it gets to about 10 members of staff, I tend to get bored with it. I want to install a manager. I want to put a team in to grow it. The skill set that I take to it compared to the skill set required to manage it day by day are completely different. Again, that's where myself and my wife came in. She would look after the day-to-day stuff. I would run all new projects. So I'd get something up and running. She would then pick it up and she would grow it and nurture it and and have a different skill set. And that team really worked. We used to call it the charm offensive. She did charm. My job was to go out and create havoc in a new business. And she would then come along behind it, smooth it all down and make it all run in an operational way. Very good. My wife and I have a very similar setup where she looks after everything apart from the selling and the delivery. And that's why we're solvent. So I'm not allowed anywhere near the money. Okay, so tell me this. Did you have a cadence of activities that you did every day in order to ensure every day, every week, every month, every quarter, to ensure that the right things were being done in the right way by the right people and that you kept your finger on the pulse without doing the work yourself? Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, she did. Very much that was her basket. And, and she started by looking at the numbers. And I would tend to do the people in the HR. Uh, she would tend to do the numbers. She kept very, as you say, I never actually knew where the money was. Um, in fact, it was best I didn't know how much we had from time to time because I'd only gone and spent it and set up another business with it. So yes, the, the operating rhythm was definitely her. The spot an opportunity, the throw the energy at it, the run it as a project, that's absolutely me. So yeah, I would go out and I would generate sales. And and what I would do with the sales side is I would work on the basis that I would go and learn how to sell each particular product into each specific market. Then the next part of my job, and probably the most important part of my job, was teaching other people. Interestingly enough, I had an experience which was a bit of an eye-opener, probably about 10 years ago now. I was taking my daughter, second child, around universities. She was going to be my first to go to university. And we went to an open day, uh, I think it was University of Southampton, and we we listened to the business management talk, and she had an interest in either going into business or going into teaching, and she was trying to decide at the time. And we talked to the professor there after she came up, as they do, and they said, well, hello, Candy, and what are you thinking of doing? And they said, well, I'm either thinking of being a teacher or I'm thinking of going into business. 
And the lecturer, Professor, I'm not quite sure what the title was, said, that's very eclectic. And I stood back and I said, really? Yes, she said. Teaching and business seem to be two completely different things. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I've been a businessman for the past 20 years, which I had at the time. And um, I spend 40 to 50% of my working day teaching people. And she went, oh, so well, that's the only way to grow a business. You don't do the job yourself. What you do is you go and learn how to do the job. And when you know how to do the job, you teach everybody else how to do it. And by oh. teaching other people, you can put in place the management controls that you need. And you're able to then train those people to do it the way that you want. You're able to learn from them because you've put it into a formalized training process. And even if you're just going from a one-man band to a two-person band, if you build the model and teach people to run the model, you end up building an engine to a design instead of chaos. I have to say, I am delighted you said that. In my experience, many organizations are run by people who create a job and they create other jobs for other people, but they never create a business because they don't spend anywhere near enough time coaching. And in fact, I interviewed Dr. Jeff McGee, um, who's a, a very prominent academic in the field of sales and entrepreneurship in the US. And his postulate was that organizations have, should have a chief learning officer whose job was 80% of the time to be spending it coaching the senior leadership team and have that trickle down through the organization. And if you are not a learning organization, then chances are you will become extinct relatively quickly because other organizations will catch up and take over. So tell me this, in terms of your selection of people, because recruitment, wrong hires is the single highest hidden cost in any business. And how did you go about selecting managing directors who were coachable? Very interesting question. Two things I'll pick up on there. Actually, there's some really good research around the hiring of salespeople. It takes on average, according to the research, four to six months to get a salesperson in and productive, but 38 months after that point to catch up with the sales that you've lost through losing a salesperson. Oh, now that is an interesting stat. Yeah, there's some really interesting stats around that. In fact, that's one of the things that I came across when I was researching uh, my latest paper on sales failure. It was a combination of things. For a start, I wouldn't invest in a business where I didn't believe the management were coachable. And so that helped. That was probably about half of the occasions. Secondly, I would honestly say hit and miss. And for all the experience that I grew over those, those years, I still couldn't guarantee to get the right people in the right place. And I think that's one of those, where will be the next market boom? Where do you invest your money? to make the biggest returns? How do you get the perfect people in the perfect place? And the short answer is you don't. What you do is you do your best. And again, I think the training re re really helps with that. One thing that I did used to do during the recruitment process is I would share with people that were coming to second interview the training plan that we had in mind for them. Often it would be a standard plan which would be customized and we would ask them to customize it for us. Do a self-assessment on this and decide where you think we would need to focus most. Those that came back and looked at the soft skills as well as the product knowledge typically got the job. Those that thought they were the perfect person, but they just needed the product knowledge, didn't. Well, again, good early disqualification filter. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want is a CRM or a drill 
or hemorrhoid cream. There's a reason why they want it, and it's to solve a problem. And salespeople who are fixated on showing photos of the ugly baby invariably struggle. And what's been really interesting about the COVID crisis is it hasn't created weaknesses and problems, it's exposed them. And what we're seeing is the sales organizations that are fixated on product knowledge training instead of soft skills training, sales training on an ongoing basis are the ones who are really struggling. So in terms of your training program, by the sounds of things, you operated a cadence of sales training that was ongoing. Did the training ever stop? Well, the interesting thing was we stopped calling it training. What we did was we embedded the processes and the knowledge and the soft skills into our operational model. And so we would have review meetings on a regular basis. When I say we, it would start off with me, but then it would become the management and then it would become the role of the people that they're managing as well. So it wasn't that I would write an operational manual and say, this is what you must do. We then wanted to bring back that learning and bring it from the shop floor up because the salespeople are in the boundary between the customer and the supplier. And so they're the people that are actually experiencing at the sharp end. So we want to bring that up and we want to solve those as problems. And everyone was encouraged to bring their problems up that channel. And during that process, we would then work out where we needed to invest time and money and effort and who we would then get to champion a particular problem. And so often we would turn our salespeople into coaches and to trainers so that they could both sell better and they could support the people around them. And that's an ongoing process. So to me, it's not a case. It was interesting when you talked about having one person responsible for coaching the board and the board then coaches the people below them who coach people below them. I'm not convinced it's a one person's job. It's actually the chief executive's job. It's the chief executive's job to embed it within every process and every part of the organization. I think that's a very fair point. And the piece about having an upward trajectory of coaching and development as well, I think is very important. And I I think the the spin-off benefit of that is that you end up creating a runway for your next generation of managers because they've already done the job. The the thing that flabbergasts me, we did a research study last year, Sandler Research Center, global study, and what we found was only 6% of sales managers are actually qualified for the job because their normal route to being a manager is being tapped on the shoulder and saying, congratulations, you're the top salesperson. Now you're managing the people that you're getting drunk with down the pub yesterday. And the problem with that is they're a completely different skill set. I interviewed Tom Castley, who's the VP of sales for Outreach. And one of the things, the observations he made was that the best managers were the salespeople who weren't necessarily the top performer. But what they managed was the highest account penetration within the account of their entire portfolio of products and services because they had a broader perspective. Now, to take this a little bit further, how did you involve or did you involve other parts of the business? So sales, marketing, operations, finance, all of those different parts of the business in speaking to and discussing sales so that they, you could bring that diversity of thought and experience into the process. I didn't delineate it. It was the business we talked about, not the sales, not the marketing, not the finance. 
we talked about the business and the business had the same style and methods at every level. We ran software development companies and we would expect our developers to be teaching each other and to be teaching their management about what they're doing. And we would expect their management to be teaching them about the softer skills in how to get on, how to deal with customers, so that when we really needed to get level three support, which was a deeply technical person involved, they were customer-friendly and customer-orientated. So it wasn't a sales versus marketing versus accounts versus finance. We actually embedded those skills across the whole of the organization. Now, sure, I lost a few developers who went off and set their own businesses up. And actually, I ended up contracting with them and in one case, investing in them as well, because I knew that they were good guys that could actually handle that rounded piece. And so, yeah, we didn't try and get people to do jobs they weren't specialist at. But what we tried to make sure is that everybody had a smattering of everything. So my salespeople understood what software and coding looked like. Couldn't code. I can't code, but I can read code. And I've got an idea of what the logic is. And they understood the design of the products and they understood what was going on at the back end because that helped them be more flexible and more supportive to customers. And one other thing that I'd like to pick up on is we were talking actually with a colleague yesterday on a sales and sales management unit that we run at the university. And we were doing our piece on ethics and we were looking at different management styles and how ethical behavior is developed dependent on the management style in the organization. And that, that's a conversation for another day. But the point that, that I'm driving at here is we were identifying the sort of leadership and management skills that you would want your salespeople to have with their interface or at the interface between your company and your customers. And we, we came to the conclusion, although there isn't yet literature to back this up, but we came to the conclusion as a debating point that servant leadership was probably one of the strongest leadership styles for that boundary-spanning role. And it's servant in both directions, servant leadership on behalf of the company and servant leadership on behalf of the customer. A really interesting book on the subject is called The Right Use of Power by Peter Brock. Mm. Uh, Peter Block, sorry. Really fascinating read. And in fact, I did an interview with a very good friend and mentor of mine, Tim Roberts, on the importance of values and honor and integrity in sales. So that's definitely a conversation we should have uh, in the future because I'm a firm believer that sales is a force for good. And if you don't act with integrity, then actually you might make it in transactional selling but you've always got to go and find someone else to burn. And given the excruciating cost of new business by comparison to selling to your existing clients, then it's crazy to ever employ salespeople who lie, who are selfish in their selling. I'm always teaching my clients that when they are turning up to meet a prospect, they need to have clarity of mission and purpose. And mission is what the customer wants and needs. And purpose is how they want us to help them solve the problem. And if we turn up thinking that we're there to try and sell to them, they will reflect back what we project out. And that is going to be resistance because no one likes it when you try and put your hand in their pocket. And they buy for their reasons, not yours. That's really interesting. And that kind of brings me on to where my my most recent research has taken me. I moved from um, practitioner to academic uh, and started my PhD journey. One of the things I wanted to do was to go and find out what all the literature said in respect of selling. And not from a success point of view, because I found there's loads of papers that say, do this, you'll be successful. There's tons of books. They're all premised on, if you do, as I say, you'll be really, really successful. You know, back to that question, what's the one sales skill, Phil? And I thought, 
it's got to be more than that. In my experience, it's more than that. It's a basket of things. So I downloaded just over, just short of 6,000 art- academic articles, and I read three every morning and three every night and scanned through them. And over the course of a couple of years, I, I filtered those down to 1,040-ish that were of real interest, read those in a lot of detail. That took me a year. And then from that, I pulled them down into 104 papers that represented all of the findings of all of the other papers, and then turned that into one single paper. So you can go and do what took me a couple of years by reading an article that I wrote in about two hours. And what I've done within that is I've been able to identify everything that academics have identified as things that you need to do if you want to avoid failure. Most of these papers are written from a success point of view, some from a failure point of view, but you can extrapolate one to the other. And it breaks down into three core themes, eight core topics, and 36 subtopics. I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, but the most three core themes: failure of sales strategy, failure of salespeople, and failure of sales management. And the three interrelate. And where I wanted to pick up on what you were saying is the strategy piece, because it's interesting that you talk about we go to talk to a customer and we want to get successful and how we're going to be successful in selling to that customer. Here's the question: What if they're the wrong sort of customer to fit the long term? Well, to fit the long term objectives for our organization. We might be quite successful in securing an order from them. And it might even be a short-term profitable order. But if instead of servicing that customer on a short-term profitable order, we'd put our effort into finding a more strategic customer that helps us through a key account relationship, for example, develop additional products and services that we don't yet know are needed, but that opens a new market sector for us, whilst on paper, that salesperson has been successful going into that customer and successfully taking a profitable order from a strategic position and the overall company success, it's a failure. And so until you start to think about all the elements that comes into the right sort of segmentation for your strategy, where you prioritize, where you're targeting, which channels you use, which mixture of channels you use, which are the most appropriate channels to use, and then within that, how you implement it, and what criteria you use. So there's a whole mix on strategy. And again, you were talking about sales management. You take the most successful salesperson and you make them the least effective sales manager. Well, actually, you take the least effective sales manager and you make them, or even the most effective sales manager, and make them the least effective sales strategy. So at a strategic level, you've got to consider where you want to sell, and that filters into the mission, vision, values, and purpose of the organization. And only when you've got that right, can you then ask your sales management to enact that strategy through how they train, coach, support, and look after their salespeople? I couldn't agree more. One of the first things that I help my clients to work out is who is not their customer. Because if you don't know who is not your customer, you could very easily spend a lot of time, energy, resource, money, opportunity cost in pursuing the wrong type of business. And I think what, certainly from Forrester's research down the channel, they've identified that those who can niche very tightly are the ones who grow the fastest and most sustainably. And the ones who take anything and everything have a real struggle to grow. And in fact, if we look at the MSP market, most MSPs are up to eight people. They're owned by a 58-year-old man who is working 70 to 90 hours per week, is pulled from pillar to post, spends a lot of time on the tools, 
They cannot grow beyond a million pound turn or million dollar turnover. And Jay McBain's prediction is that of the 600,000 MSPs in the world, 150,000 of them will go to the wall during this COVID crisis because they have only one month's cash reserves. They can't afford to furlough their staff because if they do, they'll go somewhere else and they won't be able to get them back and they'll fall back into the trap of a skill shortage. So we, we see this kind of patterns happening in whichever industry, but in tech in particular, where I've spent a lot of my time, we're seeing lots of problems because the, the plumber doesn't know how to build a plumbing business. What they do is they create lots of jobs. And I think in our preamble, you identified that you can grow to about £2 million, 50 people by doing that sort of thing, but you don't really have a business. You've got a bundle of jobs that are all lumped together and uh, it's not sustainable. So what are the three questions that people should be asking but don't in order to build that sustainable business, the right kind of sales model? Well, I'm going to answer that question probably a little bit off the wall. My hobby is sailing. I loved sailing as a child. I did dinghy sailing as a teenager. I then moved to Portsmouth thinking that I'd go sailing and didn't sail for 20-odd years. When I was getting bored later in life, my wife bought me a, a 1961 wooden boat that was almost sinking, and I spent four years restoring it and learning to sail it. And the best sales training and the best management training I ever went on was learning to skipper a yacht. So when you want to go further and uh, maybe further afield, you get to the point where you can't stay awake and you can't do everything yourself and you can't be there to issue commands. What you've got to have is a crew who know how to operate that boat to the level that you want them to, efficiently, effectively, and then know when to call you. And so you have to learn how to treat your crew. You have to learn how to think about your crew, look after your crew, because, you know, an unhappy crew is one that's unfed or cold or wet or miserable or overtired, and it is supposed to be a hobby. So you start to think more about the people, the jobs, the organization, how to keep everybody safe, how to keep everybody happy, and how to train them to do the things that you need them to do that they don't necessarily know how to do. And I thought that was some of the best management training I ever went on. A couple of long weekends in the Solent. I chose to do mine in February and November because I, I worked on the basis that if I can do it when I'm cold, wet, and exhausted, then I can do it at any point in the summer. Other people might like to do it in Greece, where it's a bit more um, warm and friendly. But that whole concept of planning where you're going, working out the tides, the wind, the weather, what's safe, who's going to go with you, what they're going to eat, where you're going to get it from, the manpower, because the bigger the yacht, the less you can do on your own, the more you need teamwork. And that was just brilliant management training. So to answer the question, what's the best sales skill? I would say go and learn to skipper a boat, because it makes you think in that more mature way how to skipper your business, whether that's your business as in the company you own or the business that you're responsible under your quota. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. I like that analogy. So what are the unasked questions? I think something I've been very surprised about that I would like people to think about is the value of higher education when running a business. And the value of it when you come to it in later years. I now work in a university, so you might say, well, he's just trying to sell courses. He would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> I think I've been quite surprised by the value that a higher degree, especially when done in later life, brings to business. I always thought of myself as thoughtful. I read a lot of books, practitioner books. 
I listened to a lot of advice. I went on a lot of courses. Um, I employed quite a lot of external help from time to time, and that did help with the business. But what I, what I didn't realize is the depth of critical thinking that is developed in academia and also the depth of knowledge that is out there if you know how to tap into it and you understand how to read the academic journals. There is quite a wall that says academia think of things in one way, practitioner thinks of them in somewhere else. I've actually found that having a foot in both camps has been useful to both camps. I can bring perspectives into my research that other researchers can't that haven't had the business experience. Yet, I can then bring scholarly work into uh, academic work into the business environment and relate one to the other. And I would very much encourage anybody that's got the wherewithal and the time to take a part-time university course, whether it's open university or similar level, or even whether it's one of the level five or six practitioner courses that are out there from the various institutions. But that ability to stand back and take a year or two years, part-time, 10 or 15 hours a week, thinking about thinking and thinking and learning things that you can apply in future rather than just dealing with the things that are in front of you now. And I think that's the difference. And I tie that back into what I was saying about learning to skip or a boat. You're not thinking about today, you're thinking about next week, the year after, the year after that. And I'd like to tie this back into one comment you made before about more niche and focused you are, the faster you can grow a business. Here's my thought to that. What if your niche is growing very quick, quickly and effectively, but there's a left field coming to it that means your niche is going to be expired? I saw a lot of business in the telecoms market grow very rapidly in the hardware and completely miss voice over IP coming. The more niche people became in that hardware, the more successful they became. Up until the point, they were completely unsuccessful. And so this ability to sit up and do your research and access the market research, the academic research, there are thousands of academics looking and testing some of these ideas. If you access it through your own academic studies, you bring it back into your workplace. This again supports David Epstein's philosophy, which is that people with a diverse background entering into a narrow field have tend to come up with much better creative solutions than people who are specialists right from the off. And I think the other aspect is that diverse groups of people come and can see the bigger picture or the whole picture. And so I I certainly wouldn't disagree with your position because what I've found is the more diverse I've made my network and the more I expose myself to different ideas, different fields, different disciplines, the bigger the picture that I have to work with. And then I can start seeing those left field trends and I can join the dots where other people probably can't. So I I think that's a very strong position to take. And certainly the academic study, I'm not averse to it at all. I think that people in business will often poo-poo academics because, you know, them that can do, them that can't teach. But the reality is, I think, If you don't have that scar tissue, then I think your teaching and your research is likely to be less than if you've got all of that. So I'm really curious to understand this then. In terms of the failures around sales management, let's start with them, because your your papers obviously identified a number of critical areas. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you've uh, discovered from, from your research? 
Yeah, management is a really interesting place in that there's been a huge amount of work done on people skills, listening, understanding customer needs, customer orientation, product knowledge, adaptability, relationship building, digital skills, enthusiasm, discipline, interpersonal presentation. I'm just rattling a list off here. I'm going to highlight ethics. Ethics is a big one here. Then motivation, psychological capital, the personality being like their orientation behind it, and how interestingly how they cope with failure. And I would say one of the pieces of research that I want to do later is to take this model and to do some testing of what the numerical value of these things would be, you know, are all three equally weighted. But sitting in the middle is management. And if you think of it as the top, you've got the strategy. In the middle, you've got the management to enact that strategy through the salespeople. And you've got that pyramid. Now, there's lots of work around what sales managers should do. And we talk about socialization, training, coaching, management of workload. Just literally looking at a quota and deciding whether in a territory is the quota too big or is the quota too small? Does it maximize the potential? Or do, have you made the quota so big that you promote different behaviors, sales orientation, because you've got to close the order rather than customer orientation? And you can do that by setting the quotas. And one of the failures that I see there is that there, there isn't a lot of linking between management style, what we want our people to do at the floor level, linked back into how we make the numbers work. And so the whole area of quota management I think is is really interesting because the quota is what salespeople are working to, and the quota denotes the behaviours that they're going to enact to achieve it. If you underquota somebody, you're missing potential opportunity. You're costing the company more money than you need to. If you overquote somebody, you promote behaviours you don't necessarily want. And so, getting that balance right and being able to identify when that balance is right, looking at what's happening at the salespeople, instead of just saying that person's perhaps working towards the edge of our ethical boundaries, we're not very happy with it, and therefore blaming the person, you actually need to look up a level and say, well, maybe they're doing that because I'm forcing them to do it because of the quota that I've given them and the timescale they've got to achieve it in, or the tool set that I'm giving them. And so you promote, you promote different behaviors through the way in which you set the, the, the boundaries and the quotas. And I think that's a big piece that's missed in sales management. And also the, how you compensate. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that really gets my goat is managers who say that they're managing the numbers. You can't manage the numbers. The numbers are an output and a byproduct of the input and the behavior that leads to them. And what I'm repeatedly disappointed by is the frequency with which managers live as spreadsheet jockeys. And you know, they spend their time spewing out pointless reports full of lag indicators that don't give them any clarity in terms of the direction and velocity they need to be going. So wh- why is it that that idiocy is perpetrated and continues when it's clear it doesn't work? Because they don't know how not to do do that. They have been taught how to manage by managers that do that. And so what they do is they're told by their boss above, you need to hit this number. So they focus on the number instead of focusing on the method. And by focusing on the number, it's a nice clear message they can put down. They say, well, I'll take the number. I've added 15% in case we have failures in any particular area. I've divided it by my X amount of sales areas, my X amount of salespeople. Off you go, guys. And now I'll shout at you until you hit the number whether it's physical shouting or not. But that, that's basically the concept. I've divided my target up, and therefore I've hit my target because I can get my people to do it. 
what comes through quite strongly is this link between control and motivation. And the more control you have, the less motivation you have within your salespeople, the less empowered they feel. And similarly, the more that you drive them to unethical behaviors or less ethical behavior, shall we say. And it's this lack of training of sales management and how to train and coach and to be people, people. As you say, you take a great successful salesperson who you then ask to be a manager of people, but you don't actually give them management training. I come back to my day skipper theory. Go and put them on a sailing course. (laughs) Again, this raises another very interesting question because only 5% of the global training budget is spent on developing sales managers in the sales arena. And so that then raises a really critical question. Why are senior leaders blind to the importance of having managers whose only function, I mean, every manager has only four functions in uh, in my view within sales. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, and then help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. If you hire the best people, then they get on and they do the job. If you're coaching, training, developing them, if you're mentoring them and uh, you're holding them to account and uh, helping them to identify areas of development, if you're making sure that they have the resources that they need, in order, you know, they've got enough uh, sales engineers, they've got the right marketing resources, they have the right sales administration support, whatever it happens to be, they've got the right leads. They get on and they do their job. But what, why is it leaders keep perpetrating this myth that you can manage the numbers, that working harder is somehow better. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard and a good work ethic is critical, but it just seems that they double down on doing the same stupid thing. And then they complain about the wall hurting their head. Yeah, I think it's because you call it training. Don't call it training because it isn't training. What it is, is marketing. And by teaching your people to have the right leadership skills in front of the customers, That's a marketing and a branding positioning. Teaching your managers to manage those people so you get those behaviors is a branding and marketing positioning. So see it as part of the marketing budget, not the training budget. Don't allocate it to, I come back to this point that you made earlier. And I did for a while. In fact, one of my very successful businesses was a computer-based training company in the day, which became a recruitment assessment company, which I then sold out to a group of training and assessment companies. So I've been down the training route. And you find a training manager who's responsible for training. And they go to the managers in their organization and say, what training can we give you? And the managers go, God, no, don't do that, because that means my salespeople coming off the road. I'm gonna, I, don't wanna, you know, I don't want to train them, because it means that we're going to get less sales this month. I can't afford it this month. Don't call it training. Don't make it training. And don't make it formalized training in that way. Make it part of your objectives. Make it part of a general coaching conversation, make it part of your sales meetings, make it part of the responsibility of those salespeople to enact a company culture in which you put the right sort of management culture in place. I come back to talking about servant leadership and using that as a marketing objective within your organization, looking at the relationships you want on the boundary between your firm and your, your customers and educating people Notice I'm not using the word training here, to do it the right way as part of the brand. 
you know, some very famous firms out there, and you can probably pick up with this and put names to it, but you think of a particular brand, you think of the way in which you're greeted at the airport, or whether it's the chauffeur that picks you up, or whether it's the experience you get in the shop, or the hotel from the doorman that walks through. They don't call it training. They call it part of their brand. You go and walk into the Savoy Hotel, you're treated in a particular way. You know, lots of other brands try and do that. Marriott try and recognize that you've been there before and the people give you a friendly service. They don't call that training. They call that the experience is lived. And that's what we need to in, in create as a culture within our sales team. So it's part of the brand and it's part of the marketing and it's a different budget. And as soon as you put it that way and say at the top level at a strategy, what is our strategy? What is the relationship we want with these customers? Which customers do we want and what's the relationship we want with them? And once you've identified the different relationship models for the different sorts of customers you want, then you enact them. And that's where you get that culture. Then when you promote somebody, you're bringing forward somebody that understands that culture and is able to then sit and do the four things that you want them to do because they have the people skills to do it. That's brilliant. It's been worth the price of admission just for that. Thank you. I found this fascinating and I would love to do this again. And I definitely want to spend a session on the research you've done around ethics because I think that's critical. And I know also you have um, some really interesting research for SMEs. So if you'd be open to it, then yeah. I'd love to do a couple more. Okay, so what, what are you personally being influenced by at the moment? What are you reading, listening to, watching that you would recommend other people? <laughs> At the moment, I'm in the final throes of my doctorate, so I am reading academic journals. <laughs> I am listening to criticism and feedback, <laughs> and I'm heads down writing and researching. So uh, I haven't really come across new books, particularly recently, because to be honest with you, I've not been looking. I've got some catching up to do in that area when the academic work is over, which will hopefully be the end of this year. But I can, I can name you lots of academic papers if you want. <laughs> One thing I would pick up on is um, the theory of effectuation. There's a website called effectuation.org, which is all about the thinking process and decision-making logics that small firms and entrepreneurs go through for accessing resources, means, leveraging, pivoting. Effectuation.org is worth a read. Um, put together by an academic in America, but it's taken off big in the venture creation environment. And I've been looking at how Frankly, when I read about it, I recognized it from some of my own experiences. What they've done, though, is they've then been able to quantify some of the behaviors that um, small business owners display. And then some of the research has gone around into where does this work, where doesn't it work, so that you get some cautions around it rather than just do it blindly. So, yeah, I, thinking about that, I, I would suggest effectuation.org and uh, Sarah Sarasvarsky. And sorry, Sarah Sarasvarsky. That's the academic who came up with it. So. Tell me something. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Phil, age 23, who thought he knew everything and was invincible, how to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? I would say always bear in mind your work-life balance. There have been times in my career where I have overextended myself and therefore sacrificed everything in my home balance to keep my work balance going. And I think two things that I would say, one is if you can't be a winner, try and avoid being a loser. I have been through four recessions in my life. In every recession, I kept the businesses I had going. In the last recession, it took me seven years to pay off the debt 
that one of my businesses ran up during an 18-month period of recession. It meant for those seven years, the businesses or that particular business was short of cash and was lame. And it kept on running, but it wasn't profitable. It sucked resources, it sucked effort, it sucked time, and it sucked energy. And I think I would have been better. It was a matter of pride to say I'd never closed a business down. I'd never let a business go bankrupt. I would have been better taking a small loss than spending seven years of my life putting in stupid amounts of time unprofitably to get it back to basically sold for nothing at the end. Mm -hmm. So I would say, uh, and in fact, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently with this current COVID environment. There's nothing wrong with saying this business was profitable, but now is not profitable. The market in which I'm working is going to take a long time to come back and making a conscious decision, do I stick with it or do I fold and come back later? And I think we get too emotionally involved with our businesses sometimes and we get too full of the pride around it and we hold when we should fold. And when I look at the large firms, the very big brands who you think are hugely successful, they start up lots of businesses. And then every now and again, quietly, they just fold one away. They go, that market's not quite where I want it to be. And so I would say to the young Phil, by all means, don't rush into businesses and don't rush into closing businesses down. But you do have to keep that hard head that says, we're now in a very economic, difficult position. What is best, a short-term loss or long-term pain? Absolutely. So don't stay in too long. Don't get out too early. And don't let ego be your enemy. Absolutely. Very, very sage advice. Okay, final question. What what are you struggling with yourself? Obviously, you've got your PhD to finish. Is it just that or is there something else that you're struggling with or wrestling with at the moment? It's interesting. It's all about finding purpose. I've been looking over the fence now for two or three years. I've I've been through this change in life where my, my wife and business partner passed away. I went from being happily married chief executive to widowed junior academic in a very short period of time. That does leave you with a, a self, well, not confidence, but self, self-identity self problem. Who am I? What do I do? It, it took me a few, a couple of years to get past the point where I say, I, I now teach in a university. But before that, I was a businessman. Now I'm actually proud to say I'm an academic. And I think closing the PhD will, will help me with that because it is the qualification that, to my mind, seals the job and says, right, I'm now in that industry and that's what I do. So I would say what have I struggled with most has been my identity and the change in identity. It's been a difficult and interesting journey. Would I go through it again? Yeah, I would now, actually. I'm quite happy the fact now that I'm more able and more flexible with being able to see myself as me and not my role title. Whether it was dad, my children have all grown up, husband, my wife passed away, businessman with status in the community, to being junior academic and not really dad anymore because the kids have grown up and gone away. The personal situation has changed as well. So that, that identity change is something that I've struggled with. This is really interesting. I mean, one of the core tenets of what we teach is the difference between role and identity. Role is what you do. Dad, husband, father, business owner, salesperson, technician, whatever. And identity is who you are. And it's really, really crucial. What we see is that people who have a strong core identity and do not allow role performance or their perception of their status in role to bleed into their identity, tend to be resilient, they tend to be more well-rounded, and they have the ability 
to make it through the tough times because they recognize that a bad day at work does not make Phil a bad human being. And it's really fundamental that if you're listening to this, look up uh, what we call IR theory. And it's, I think, one of the most important things that David Sandler brought to the sales profession is a real understanding of the difference between what you do and who you are. And the who you are really revolves around your self-concept, your values, your beliefs. So when we speak next around ethics, I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into IR theory as well, because I, I think that really is incredibly powerful And it certainly made a huge difference to my career when I realized that I could separate the two. So, Phil, this has really been incredibly enlightening. And I really look forward to the next couple of conversations that we have. How can people get hold of you if you want them to? By all means, you can look me up on the University of Portsmouth website. I'm um, philip.mcgowan at port.ac.uk. And always happy to have an email and have a chat uh, around these topics. Excellent. So, Phil McGowan, thank you very much for being such a fantastic guest. This is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you've got questions or you disagree with what we've said, then please comment, like, share, and please subscribe to the Inquisitor podcast. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, I've just launched a new podcast called Scale Ups and Hypergrowth, where I'm interviewing top sales performers and uh, business leaders from disruptive technology scale-ups that are growing at an alarming rate. So two, three, four hundred percent, three thousand percent per annum. And how they manage to grow those businesses without the wheels coming off. So if you're interested in that, it's scaleupsandhypergrowth.podbean.com. It's also available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So in the meantime, be well and happy selling. Bye-bye.